I think that's the best, shortest introduction I've ever had. (laughs) Very good indeed. Well, it's nice to be back for a third Sunday. You have been very patient, and I have really enjoyed being here. There's probably people here this morning who haven't been here all along, so let me just kind of introduce what we have been doing in these three Sundays. There's a verse in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 that has instructions to the disciples at the very beginning of the church, and the the instructions were very simple. The Lord was expecting them to uh, kind of spread the good news First of all, to Jerusalem, he told them. Then to Judea and Samaria and to the rest of the world. And we discussed some of the reasons why that was a very difficult thing for them to do. So there wasn't enough of them. And they didn't know the languages and all of those kind of things. And so we discover that this all unfolds, I think, in three parts. And so the first part was very simply this, the Holy Spirit came. He was the one who was going to give them the enablement to do this. He's the one who enabled them to speak in other languages. He was the one who enabled Peter to preach, first of all, so that there were 3,000 new converts. So numerically now, they could begin to go about this job. However, we saw that Nobody bothered to go anywhere. They just stayed in Jerusalem with this message. So the second part of what God is doing in order to release the good news is he brings persecution to those people. And so under persecution, some of them are driven out of Jerusalem. In fact, most of them are driven out of Jerusalem and they go to Judea and Samaria. And so now the good news has the enablement of the Holy Spirit, and under the persecution of those early Christians, it begins to move out to some other places. And besides going to Judea and Samaria, you remember we ended up with Philip sharing this good news with a man from Ethiopia. And so now the gospel has moved all the way to Africa. But the mainly populated part of the world at that time still has not received the good news. So how is that going to happen? That's where we want to go today. So let me begin it with a little story from last week. Last Sunday afternoon, we were here in Peterborough. And then we drove home and discovered a message on our telephone when we got home. It was a message from our son, who sounded visibly shaken. Something has happened. What has happened? Well, he and his family happened to live in a town in the States called Washington, Illinois. Washington, Illinois, had just been hit with a tornado. And uh, so, in their little town, 400 homes had been just perfectly flattened. Brand new subdivision, flat as a pancake, two blocks away from where 
our son and family live. And so it was quite an upset for that town, a huge event. As we eventually managed to get them on the phone, we discovered another little story that went like this. Our granddaughter works in a nursing home, and um, part of what she does at times is there's a, an old lady who lives next door in a home all by herself, but our granddaughter goes and puts her to bed every night, makes sure that she's all right and looks after whatever needs looking after and puts her to bed. So our granddaughter is working last Sunday afternoon in the nursing home and, um, and looks out the window to where this old lady lives across the street and suddenly realizes there's no home there. She runs out of the nursing home across the street to, uh, to this home and made a strange discovery. This old lady knew that something bad was happening, the wind was howling, and so she went in the bathroom and sat on the toilet. And now our granddaughter finds her sitting on the toilet and her house totally gone. She spent the next hour just holding this old lady who is just can't stop shaking. Her whole world has just disappeared in seconds. Everything is turned upside down. So it made me think of what we're talking about today in Acts chapter 9. And uh, let me just read a little bit of this story to you, which begins in verse 1 of that chapter, where it says, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He's the one who has just seen to it that Stephen is stoned to death. And now he has gone on a mission to be sure that all of the Christians are killed. He's got murder in his heart. That's what he's all about. And then the next thing we discover is in verse 5, he's on the Damascus Road. And his world has been changed in a blink. And now he is asking a question that I'm sure he never dreamt he would ask. And that is, who are you, Lord? He has just met the risen Christ. If that event in Washington was an earth-shaking, life-changing kind of event, it doesn't hold a candle to what is just happening now on the Damascus Road, where a man who is a murderer one minute is becoming a disciple of Jesus the next minute. Talk about transformation. The Bible uses all kinds of words like conversion, the new birth. It talks about coming out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Or, in very simple terms, it sometimes talks about 
moving from death unto life. Wow. Many of us here have had that experience. We know something about that. Probably none of us had an experience quite as dramatic as the Apostle Paul. Why was his so dramatic? Well, simply because God has chosen him for a very special mission. God is going to use him in a unique way, maybe beyond anything that anybody else has ever experienced. So on down in verse 15, we have a man who is now commissioned to go and talk to this man Saul, and uh, he needs to understand what God is doing. And here's how it is spoken there. The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument. To carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. So what we are seeing is that the good news has been released to Judea and Samaria. But who is ever going to take it to the Gentiles? Who's going to go to the rest of the world? And God has chosen what I'm going to call a point man now. This man, Saul, who is going to become known as Paul, who is going to become the apostle to the Gentiles, the sent one of God to the Gentiles, he is a unique man, specially chosen for this very special event. And out of all of these scenes, we want to try and learn some lessons for us today. And so we hope that we'll do that as we go along. But I think it is important for us to begin to understand that in order to do this special job, you had to be uniquely fitted and prepared. And so there's some things going on here that we can hardly imagine. But let me describe a few of them to you very quickly. If God is going to send somebody to the Gentiles, then he has got to somehow like the Gentiles and uh, have the ability to reach out to them. But one of the problems was that God had instructed that this good news was to go to the Jewish people first and also to the Gentiles. So how could he do this? How could he go to the Gentile world and reach into the Jewish world at the same time? You've got to like the uh, Gentiles. You've got to like and understand the Jews. And so this man we're talking about just happens to be a Jew who, unlike most of the other Jews, was going to end up really liking the Gentiles. That's pretty unique. So here he is. And uh, he has come from a Jewish world in the middle of a Gentile nation. He's come from a territory that hasn't been discussed yet in the Bible, other than it's kind of that Gentile world away out there. So besides liking Gentiles and liking Jews... He is going to have to be an incredibly physically fit person because this world that he is supposed to go to is going to take walking 
by the hundreds and hundreds of miles. The first part that he's going to travel is what we now think of as the country of Turkey. And uh, I have traveled across there in a bus a couple of times and discovered that it was one long bus ride. Imagine walking it. I can hardly imagine it, having gone across it, but he's going to do that, and he's going to have to be a pretty physically fit kind of guy. He also is going to have to support himself somehow. He's going into a territory that uh, uh, there aren't a whole bunch of friendly Christian churches around. They didn't exist. So who's going to support him? He's going to have to figure out how to do that uh, all on his own. But now, what I think of as the most difficult part of the whole thing is he's going to go into town after town, city after city, and he is going to have to somehow find a way to get the ear of the people. How would you go about that? If you said, uh, now, there isn't a Christian in the city of Toronto, and so God is sending you to Toronto to uh, take the good news there. How would you go about that? Well, I suppose in our day and age, we can think of some ways in which we might communicate with them. Uh, maybe uh, we would say, I guess I'll go to the uh, main radio station or the main TV place and, and I'll broadcast the good news. But Paul didn't have those kind of options. So how do you get the attention? How do you get the ear of the people? Well, obviously, God had given him a giftedness, an ability to do that that is beyond my understanding. I don't know how I would do that. Besides that, if you said that Paul is going to be persecuted all along the way, people are going to uh, end up hating him many times. They're going to... Uh, they're going to reject what he has to say. They're going to poo-poo him. They're going to thumbs down on him. But more than that, they're going to throw rocks at him. They're going to throw him in prison. They're just going to give him a bad time all along the way. I would say, if you're going to then go into this job, if there's anything else you need, it is a super thick elephant hide. You need to be able to take all of that rejection and abuse that you're going to get all along the way. So that's quite an item for him. So specially gifted, uniquely gifted, hardly even cuts it. This man has to be uh, something else. He also must be a team builder because ultimately he can't do this by himself. He needs to pull other people around him that will assist him along the way. So one of the uh, fun things to read all through Paul's history is to discover that uh, he does that and does that wonderfully well. So he starts off with a man called Barnabas. You know that story? And, uh, and Barnabas worked with him. They took somebody else with him called John Mark. But somewhere along the line, John Mark bailed out on him. And then ultimately, when they were going to go again, while uh, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark again, give him a second chance, Paul doesn't want him. And so they split. 
And we say, oh, that's really bad news. That's what the church has been doing ever since, splitting. Well, no, maybe it wasn't so bad. Do you know what happened? There ended up being two teams instead of one. So uh, Paul took Silas with him. Barnabas took John Mark. Others were added along the way. So we uh, begin hearing about Luke and Timothy and others. And so God just multiplies these team efforts. And all along the way, Paul saw people converted to Jesus Christ. They had this same remarkable experience of moving from death to life. They became new creatures. And so in this pagan Gentile world, there are now churches of believers, followers of Jesus, who have made that commitment to love him and follow him. And these places multiply. They become special teams working together with one heart. And that is, we have good news and we need to tell our world about it. So that just continually happened. And they had to reach out to all classes. I find that a fascinating thing too. So one of the places that Paul eventually goes to is a place called Athens. That was the academic world. But he also went to Corinth at the same time. That was the commercial world. That's where the seafaring men uh, worked and operated and so on. And uh, he went to rich people. He went to poor people. He went to people who lived on islands. He went to people in big cities. He went to people in small towns. He had to learn to reach out to all classes. So he was a unique man. So what we want to say this morning is none of us had quite the same experience as he did. None of us are uniquely gifted as he was. Oh, but just a minute. Let me rephrase that. All of us are uniquely gifted. We are all made the way God wants us to be, given the special giftedness by his spirit that he wants us to have. And all of that is geared so that we can touch our world with the good news. Paul had a colossal job. We don't have that big a job, but we need to represent Christ wherever we are with the unique gifts that he has given to us. I can stand here this morning and say with confidence that not one of you are like me. And suddenly I hear a huge hallelujah. Uh, You're so glad about that. But you see, none none of you people are like the person beside you the rest of the people in the room. We are all unique. And that is so wonderful to get our minds around and understand that God has uniquely fitted every one of us for this special task of being his representatives. The people who are going to share the good news with the rest of the world. And we really need to get a handle on that. 
What is it that God wants me to do right now? What I want you to see now for a few moments is what Paul began to do. And this may be boring stuff for you, so forgive me for going over it. But Paul now goes on four special journeys. And uh, his first journey is across what we think of now as the country of Turkey. And there he established churches all along the way. I have had the great joy of going over that territory a couple of times. So it all begins away across the country in a place called Antioch. That wasn't terribly far from Jerusalem. And so people went up to Antioch. And then from Antioch, it's just a short journey to where Paul was born and raised in Tarsus. You're all looking up here, so the map must be up there, I guess. Okay. And so you begin to follow a cross. There's a place called Iconium. And uh, on you can go right on across the country till ultimately you come to Colossae and uh, Ephesus and so on. The seven uh, churches that are mentioned in the book of Asia are all on the coastal side. And so you can look at them, Smyrna and Pergamum and, and so on. Anyway, that was the territory that Paul covered in his first journey. And I just want you to see the immensity of the country and try and understand what a great thing it was that he did under God to reach that great part of the world with the good news. Then he goes back on a second journey. And when he goes back on a second journey, he revisits all of these places in order to see that they are encouraged and prospering and growing. And so he spends time with them and he helps them in many ways. One of the things he does is make sure that he establishes elders in every place, the text tells us, so that Whatever else was important for all of these new churches, it was that there was an understanding that there is leadership established here who are going to give guidance by the Spirit of God and help this uh, congregation grow and prosper and keep telling the good news. So leadership put in place in in all of these places. But as he goes through all of this territory again, you know, if I walked that once, I don't know if I'd want to walk it again. What do you think about that? Uh, Anyway, we won't park on that, uh, just to say that he did it. And uh, I'm sure maybe he took a camel ride once in a while, just for variation. But anyway, he crosses all this territory. And then, He receives this special message from God again. A vision in the night. A person calling, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us now. You've helped them over there. Come and help us. And so Paul now goes into whole new territory again. So he goes across the territory that we call the Bosphorus, and he comes into what is now known as the north end of Greece. And he comes to a place, first of all, called Philippi. And as he uh, 
shares the good news in Philippi. Now, nice new country. What happens to him? Well, you know that story well. He ends up in prison. That's what happens to him. They beat him up, whipped him, threw him into prison. But out of that came great results. So, again, most of you know that story. The jailer becomes a Christian. The jailer asks the big question, so what do I need to do to be saved? How can I have this conversion experience? How can I move from death to life? And uh, he hears the good news, and he becomes a Christian. And uh, Paul and Silas are uh, eventually set free. And so what do they do? Enough of this beating and imprisonment stuff. We're going back home. No, not at all. You see, they had gone through that in Turkey as well. They had gone to a place called Lystra, where they were stoned and left for dead. And they got up and went to the next town and shared the good news again. Beatings, imprisonment was not going to stop them. So now they go on to uh, Thessalonica next. And uh, you can read the letters to the Thessalonians and discover that a wonderful work of God was done there. A church has been established that is strong and bright and wholesome. And they go on to Berea. And they go on down to Athens and to Corinth. So now this whole new wonderful territory has been opened up. So journey number one across Turkey. Journey number two across Greece. And the gospel has really invaded a big part of the Gentile world. But journey number three now goes to the central big city of that territory. And that was Ephesus. So if you went all around, all across Turkey, all across Greece, nowhere else was as much a focal point as Ephesus was. That was the big central city. It was also the big heart of paganism. It's where the biggest building in the world existed, which was a a temple to Aphrodite. And so the many-breasted goddess was center to all of life. Prostitution was was normal because it was temple prostitution. It was part of the worship services in the pagan world. So what a horribly black, satanically controlled place. And this is now where Paul takes the good news. The nice people out in the country need to hear the good news. Uh, The people in the pleasant cities around need to hear the good news. But the people in the darkest territory in the world need the good news, maybe worse than anybody. And so Paul goes there and stays there for nearly three years, sharing the good news in this place. At the end of this period of time, Paul makes an announcement And the announcement was, I must also go to Rome. That's another part of the world altogether. So, 
Turkey, Greece. It was Syria. It was Asia back then. But now, across to another country altogether, the capital city of the world, Rome. Whatever else I do, I have reached much of the Gentile world, but I must go to Rome, Paul says. Well, it's rather interesting. We could talk a long time about all of the things that uh, were involved in this. Uh, Paul ultimately has gone back to Jerusalem. He has been charged with all kinds of things. And it all works out as part of the plan of God to get Paul back to Rome. Or not back to Rome, but to Rome for the very first time. And so, as he goes there, he goes there somewhat as a prisoner. All of his time in Rome, he is going to be basically a prisoner. Is that the way you want to go in order to share the good news? Chained? Bound? Well, it's all part of God's unique plan. So it is working out and Paul is going to Rome. Along the way, there are storms. There are shipwrecks. There are snake stories. There are all kinds of horror things that happen to him that would have kept anybody from going to Rome. But Paul goes past all of those difficulties. And then someone pointed out that when he gets to Rome, he goes past a place that is called the Three Taverns. You say, why is that in the divine account? What is God saying here? Well, the taverns was a place of great pleasure, I would say. It was the drinking hole of Rome. And, uh, and Paul is not deterred by storms and snakes and shipwrecks. And he's not deterred by the pleasure places either. He is going to Rome because he has a mission. He is commissioned to take the good news, not just to the people of the world, but you remember what Ananias was told? He's going to take it to kings as well. The emperors, the Roman emperors, are going to be confronted with the good news through this man. If you are told that uh, part of your job is to take, your, uh, to take the good news, to the kings of the world, the chancellors, the high and mighty, you'd say, how ever would I do that? But Paul worked that out for Paul, and he is going there with this good news. I want us to reflect on all of that as we close off this morning and say that surely there are some principles and some very important lessons that we need to learn. And I suppose one of them is that uh, as Paul sees teams of people formed in order to carry this good news, we need to learn to do that too. How do we turn the local church into one big team that God has put together in an area with a whole variety of giftedness and now we learn to join hands and do what he has called us to do. 
So often we live fragmented lives. We're not joined together. We're not on the same team. We're not seemingly playing the same game at times. And I'm sure that this is one of the great lessons of the New Testament is that we are called to work together to make all of this happen. There were uh, groups of people we find right from Acts chapter 2 that gathered together for prayer and for worship and teaching and they did communion together. But their heart was all centered around this issue of we have got this good news that needs to be told. So we must not become insular. We must not just gather together like a club and have nice little Bible studies, nice little prayer meetings. But we need to do those things so that we are strengthened so that we are reaching out to our world still today. That is so critical. So evangelism was the heart of these people. And it still should be the main thing that drives us, motivates us. We want to be missional churches in our world today. So this has continued for 2,000 years. We need to reaffirm our part in all of this. On radio, television, all this week, we heard stories of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Most of us uh, who are older uh, kind of remember it happening, maybe remember exactly where you were when it happened and so on. But one of the interesting uh, stories that I heard years ago was that in Britain at the time, there was a theater that was doing a live production And uh, a part of the play was that a guy was playing a very nonchalant guy who was going for a job interview. And uh, when he went for this interview, in order to show how nonchalant he was about the whole thing, he was holding a transistor radio to his ear. So he's having this job interview and listening to the radio at the same time. You can't get much more nonchalant than that, can you? But one of the things he did as he did this play was he always turned on the radio so that he's actually listening to some live broadcast while he's talking to this interviewer. And as he has on this, turns on his live broadcast in this play, on comes the announcement of JFK's assassination. He turned it off as fast as he could, but it was too late. The whole theater heard it. It ended the show. It so grabbed the attention that of all the people there that nobody paid any attention to now what was happening as far as the theatrical production was concerned. It just in a blink of time became an invasion of reality into the theatrical world. And I have often thought that isn't that what we need today? Isn't that what the church needs? Is a huge dose of reality in the middle of our play acting. We go through the little 
charade of doing church week after week. We, uh, we come together and do our Sunday thing. We act like good Christians today. We talk the talk and we forget to walk the walk. And so somehow we have just lost touch with what God has called us to do. We have lost touch with reality. And somehow we need an invasion again by the Spirit of God of what we are really here for. We have to get by our playing games, our doing theater. We have to get to the fact that the world is lost around us. The people that we work beside are lost. They're dead, spiritually dead. They need this conversion experience that we have talked about. It doesn't have to be like the Apostle Paul, but somehow people need to be moved from death to life. And so I would simply say to us this morning, wouldn't it be a wonderful, wonderful thing If right here today, somehow the Spirit of God spoke into all of our hearts so that we go away from here saying, I think, I think, I heard the voice of reality today. I think that I need to get beyond some of the stuff I have been doing. I need to begin to live somehow like the driven, purposeful Apostle Paul who had one thing on his mind and none of the other stuff was going to stop him. It wouldn't slow him down. It wouldn't deter him in any way because I must make Christ known. Let's pray. Father, we long for that in our hearts today. We pray that somehow your voice by your spirit would be heard in our hearts. It may be that there are people here who simply need that conversion experience. They need to understand how you have loved them, how you have provided the sacrifice of your son for them in order to have forgiveness and eternal life. And maybe today they would receive that gift and come from death to life. But Father, there are many of us that have simply been going through the motions of our faith and we need you to touch us in a fresh way and move us to obedience to Christ. And so we pray for this. As the service continues, may you continue to speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.